Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So we just started a brand new series on the book of Esther last week. So in last week's episode, we went over just some basic background information and chapter one, which helps set the stage for the rest of the book. And Erica, where are we going today? So today we're going to go to chapter two. Hey! Uh, (laughs) As we said at the end of last episode, there's kind of a time jump. Um, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're about seven years later um, after Xerxes has, has done some work trying to conquer the Greeks and battling the Greeks and those kind of things. And so in chapter 2, we finally get introduced to our um, main character, the, the woman who the book is named after. But we'll find that in chapter 2, there's a couple of different names for people. Um, this is typical when you're reading about anything dealing with Persia. Um, we, we, you see this in the, in the story of Daniel as well. Like him and his three friends, uh, Matt, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are not Hebrew names. Those are um, Persian names. And so in chapter 2, we're going to be dealing with a little bit of that and figuring out how exactly it is that Esther ends up in the palace of Xerxes. And maybe as a refresher, to like set the stage for like, where, where's the bar for what kind of a person King Xerxes is. Yeah. He had deposed his previous queen because she didn't want to come to his, to be crude about a drunken orgy, uh, and wouldn't come to that party uh, because she didn't want to be treated like an object. And then the king decides, that's not acceptable. We can't let women act and choose for themselves or treat, be treated like human beings. Uh, so not only do I have to get rid of her, but I have to pass a law that all men have to be masters of their house, and the women are not allowed to, they must do whatever their husbands say. Uh, and that leaves a vacancy, they're, they're, they're now going to be recruiting in the HR department for a queen. Yes, and again, Xerxes, even though he's now a couple years older, still seems to be a pretty shallow guy. <laughs> right. Because he's just inviting all of the beautiful young women um, and in the, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew says women of mar- marriageable age. It does not say virgin, um, but that is probably assumed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that's important for us as we look at our English translations that it says, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Uh, no. Right. It says women of marriageable age. Uh, so no children, but also like, yeah. you know, probably not any old unmarried women either. And, uh, and they need to be beautiful. Right. So basically, his solution is we're going to throw a beauty pageant, right? So yeah. he, he invites all the beautiful, young, attractive women of the kingdom to come gather with his harem in the capital city, and they will basically have a beauty pageant, and the prize is he'll make you queen. Yeah, and you'll get all of the beauty, beauty treatments. Right. right? And, and later on, I think they describe these beauty treatments a little bit further, and I think everybody gets like a year's worth of beauty treatments before they go and spend a night with the king, and that's a long time to get face masks. Yeah, and oils. yeah, yeah. And it's probably worth remembering too that like 
whatever whatever these treatments were, and we, we, we can't guess exactly what their picture, what beauty was, but there's evidence in the Hebrew scriptures that the ancient world's description of beauty doesn't necessarily line up with what like modern 21st sensibilities are. So like you read the love poetry in Song of Solomon, like their descriptions of like your teeth all match. I mean like there's a certain like the the, the bar is set a little bit differently, right? Like so I'm I'm you're really beautiful, you you've not lost any of your teeth, okay? And um you know like description of how how your neck is like a pillar. Well again, a love a lovely metaphor, but you know Contemporary description of beauty is not like neck focus, and yet that's a part of how ancient. So this, this might be a rather different sort of set of what beauty looked like. And, and I would argue that the length of time makes sense set in a society where skinny women equals malnourished. Women. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like our standards of beauty of um, you know of like very skinny um, for women is like for most of history that would have not been considered beautiful because they would have been oh man you look like you haven't eaten well your entire life right are you even like are are you healthy enough to have a healthy baby right right like you know beauty was usually like you're a little bit um heavier because that meant you've had good food your entire life and interesting too how like even things like the the shade of your skin has meant different things in, in different history eras too where you know now we live in an era where having tan skin is sort of the sign of uh you know that you, you're you're luxurious and beautiful but for a lot of history that was a sign that you were outside laboring somewhere and that if you were well to do you would have pale skin because you didn't have to be out working in a field somewhere um, so, like, again, our, our, our definitions of what beauty are not necessarily going to line up to, to what's going on in the story. Yeah. But it does still boil down to a beauty contest. Yeah. So, a year would have been a sufficient amount of time to gain some weight from eating good food and lose your tan lines from working out in your family. Right, right, right. To get, get, get them good and pale, right? <laughs> so, all right. So, they, they, they put the one through this and we're introduced to... Um, uh, first, we're actually introduced to uh, uh, a man uh, who is Jewish in this story, whose name is Mordecai, and it's going to turn out Esther's relation of his. Yeah, so um, we, we are given Mordecai's family history a little bit. We're like told he is the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, uh, who is the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. And there is at least a good likelihood that this might be the same Kish who is Saul's father. Yeah. So there is at least a possibility that Kish, who was carried off in um, uh, by somebody at the Babylonians, yeah, um, that this was Mordecai's great grandfather. So Mordecai is in fact related to King Saul, if that is true. If it's the same Kish, because. I do not know how common Kish yeah. was as a right, name. Right, right, right. Um, but it's at least a possibility which will make his relationship with Haman a little bit more interesting um, because Haman is an, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce this right, an Agagite. And Saul lost his throne because he chose to spare um, an Agagite king. So there is a certain amount of interesting, like almost Shakespearean level, like the yeah. layers of who's is whose enemy here. Maybe we should also spend a moment that the name Mordecai, again, he's a, he's a, this character who's going to be our, our segue into Esther. Um, 
his name is likely uh, one of those Babylonian borrowed names. That uh, you know, He may have had a Hebrew name, but when you grew up in the exile, the Babylonians gave you a name after one of the Babylonian gods. Sort of like in Roots, where they take away Kunta Kinte's name and he becomes Tobi. As this way, like, that's what empires do. They try and make you forget your old identity. So like you said earlier, Erica, just like they do to Daniel and the three friends, and now most people, if they know them at all, only know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and th- those names aren't just signs of dominance, but they were usually signs of dominance by giving names of the pagan gods, too. Um, so similarly, uh, Mordecai is likely a name formed from the Babylonian god Marduk, um, who I believe figures uh, heavily in the Enuma Elish, if you're a fan of um, Babylonian epics. Um, but um, Mordecai... I mean, it's one of those details that suggests, yeah, this is someone who would have come through the exile. They, he wouldn't have, he would have gone by a Babylonian given name, and now that Babylon has receded and Persia is the new empire, he's he's come through that. He's come through the exile. He's come through Babylon, and now Persia is the the power of the day. Um, so he is probably the the older, wiser figure now, and he's going to be. He he introduces us then to Esther. Yeah. So Esther is uh, she's introduced by her Jewish name. First, which is Hadessa, which uh, means to conceal, which I think is very poetic because for the majority of this book, Esther has to conceal her identity as a Jewish woman. And then Esther, again, being her Persian name, is um, shares the root word with the goddess Ishtar, which is uh, means star. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, she's given a she's been given a foreign name by the the, the empire of the day as well, um, and. It's interesting, too, you note that um, the, 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 the text itself starts to identify these people as Jewish. This, this is one of the first places in the book where finally this is what the identity is. Instead of being Israelites or Judahites, now it's like all those individual tribal affiliations are beginning to be lost, or at least the rest of the world doesn't care about them. So even though the narrator has told us that Mordecai comes from the family of Benjamin, the rest of the world just looks at them and goes, oh yeah, you all came out of the, out of the exile, you guys are Jews. A word that probably itself goes back to Judah, the tribe of Judah, which is the southern kingdom that got conquered uh, by Babylon. So, so this is a, one of those stories where the identity of being Jewish is sort of the, the identity that comes to the fore rather than just what your tribal identity is, which, which of the tribes you'd come from. Um, in a way similar maybe to like there was an era in American history early on when people first identified themselves by what state they came from. And only after enough time did we just sort of, yeah, I'm an American, I come from the United States, and who cares what state I came from. But this is one of those points where to be Jewish was, was the definitive identity. So Esther is um, a kin's person to Mordecai. Um, in our modern translations, I believe we get cousin, typically, mm-hmm. as their relation. Um, But there is a lot of textual variance with this section of Esther, um, because there are many, there were like early, early on, there were lots of different versions of Esther. One version says that she, that Esther is uh, Mordecai's adopted daughter, Um, and another version, Esther is his wife. Which makes this a whole lot more sticky. Yeah, and and maybe worth noting that um, this is one of those moments we get to have a window on how these stories got handed on. That yeah, early on the story, these stories first would have been told orally in a lot of situations. At some point, they're written down and. In the copying down or translating, you sometimes get those issues of, uh, you know, 
maybe it's from one language to another and the, you don't quite get the right word bringing from one language to another or a couple of variations on how the story was told. Even if he's not legally her adoptive daughter, or adoptive father, uh, Mordecai acts in that kind of role as guardian for Esther um, and certainly advises and guides and directs her as the story goes along that uh, would fit with being an adoptive parent but could just be simply, I'm an older, I'm like an uncle or an older cousin or something and I've decided to take her under the wing so that she can be kept safe or something. So she wins the beauty pageant, uh, and uh, when she wins the beauty pageant, it, the text says Esther doesn't reveal her people or her kindred because Mordecai has warned her not to do this. We don't know yet why, that, why Mordecai had that hunch, but uh, she, she gets chosen to go, uh, to, to, she gets the king's favor and indeed uh, wins the beauty pageant. I think we've skipped a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, okay, well, all right, catch us up then. <laughs> like the beauty pageant, beauty treatment lasted quite a while. I think it's worth noting that during her time of getting the beauty treatments that she gained a lot of favor. Mm, like okay. she isn't the underdog in this race at all. Like she, the, the eunuch that is put in charge of the beauty contestants before they see the king like, he adores her and gives her, like, the best maids, gives her the best beauty treatments. She is gaining, like, she's gaining those things faster than all her contemporaries. And I think that's important to note that she is well-liked yeah. by the Persians. Yeah. Like, again, she's not the underdog. And when, so after the contestants spend their night with the king, which they could, like, ask for anything they want to, like, you know, what clothing do they want to wear? What jewels? What food? Um, Esther is very smart, and she asks the eunuch who's in charge of them, you know, what should I take? And he, of course, has known the king for a while, and he, like, kind of knows what the king likes and doesn't like. And so he's the one that's all like, yes, wear this. Mm -hmm. Wear your hair like this. Wear your makeup like this. And so when she goes in in front of the king, she has this advantage that arguably the other contestants do not have. That's interesting, because when I think about the story of Esther, there are some ways, to me it feels like a parallel story of like Daniel uh, and the way he sort of curries favor with the foreign emperor of his time, and that there are some really important contrasts. As much as they are both stories about how do you survive or how do you, you know, come to favor when you are the underdog, when you're a minority living under a foreign power, there's a number of places where Daniel foregoes the sort of special treatment. He even, like, won't eat the king's food and doesn't have the king's special food and almost resistantly, no, I'm only going to have vegetables and water, and does just fine. In fact, does better than the other people who do eat the king's food. Whereas here, Esther does get the king's food and does take all of that, all the perks and all the advantages that are offered to him, uses those well and is well-liked. I don't, I don't think that you can read the Bible and go, it's either that one is the right moral choice or the other. You can't say, never accept the, what the empire is offering you, because Esther does, and it works to her advantage, and that saves her people in the end. And then on the other hand, you can't just say, well, you always take the perks you can get, because Daniel sort of resistantly doesn't, and still does just fine as well. Um, but the, you, it, it seems an important part of why this story got remembered was... As, as the, the, the Jewish people, as, as they look for how do we live 
when we don't have power of our own? How do we live under the, the, the thumb of different empires? And that there's a lot of wrestling. How, how can we do that and be faithful and keep our integrity and care for our own people, but also keep our integrity and our character? And that those kind of stories had to be held on to because it was such a challenge, whether it was the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, that becomes a recurring question. How do we hold on? How do we not sell out and still, still survive? as queen and I think another important thing to notice is that when she is made queen uh, Xerxes once again throws a banquet but this time it's called Esther's banquet. Uh-huh. There isn't there doesn't seem to be that separation uh-huh. of men and women. It's just this is the banquet we're all here. And while that's going on, we're given sort of, again, it feels like a Shakespeare play almost. That like While the party's going on and all the party's happening, Mordecai's hanging out outside of the gate. And um, uh, like, like we'd said earlier, Mordecai had told Esther not to reveal that she's Jewish. And uh, so that still remains secret. But while Mordecai's hanging out there, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. And um, he goes and tells Esther, and Esther tells the king in the name of Mordecai and uh, the, the plotters, the people who are plotting to kill the king, are arrested and hung on the gallows. And we get the beginning of an important idea that these things are recorded and put in the book of the presence of the king. So there's a, there's a record, there's a historical record that Mordecai has foiled this plot. It's, it, it's kind of in the book of Esther where things seem serious. Mm-hmm. Like, things aren't exaggerated. Things don't seem lavish and ridiculous. It's just suddenly, very suddenly, this is factual. Yeah, This yeah, is yeah. what happened next. Uh, without being silly or ridiculous, it's just Actual. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it's important too, maybe in, in a way that I hadn't thought about before, that in the up to this point, they've laid the groundwork that the empire, obviously because they've, they had conquered the remaining pieces of the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonians had conquered empires before them, that you've got now a pretty cosmopolitan mix of people, that there can be Jewish people without everybody knowing you were Jewish and we're going to run into... Haman, who's an Agagite later on, like that, that it's, it's not a weird thing in the capital city of the Persian Empire that there's all sorts of different ethnic groups there, and that makes it different than, say, you know, at, at, at the height of the unified kingdom, Jerusalem would have said, like, you know, well, this is mostly where Jewish people live. There are Judeans here, but they had a real strong, we don't want to take an outsider kind of impulse. But in the empire, there's this. There's there's a whole bunch of mixing of people, and that there's a there's a reason plausibly why Mordecai, this Jewish guy, happens to be outside the gate, and then later on there's going to be other hostilities with other ethnic groups because in this setting it is pretty cosmopolitan. So something that okay, so this moment is pretty factual and not ridiculous, mm-hmm. unless you know how Xerxes died. Oh, okay. Um, because so the two the two people who were conspiring to kill the king they were the Right, right, right. 
So yeah, it is. It is interesting that there is this like this is treated like a very very serious thing, and yet man, this is actually what happens. But although the Book of Esther doesn't give us that story, instead it's that's what history later records as what happens in, in other sources. But yeah, so here, here here's it, there's this like and Mordecai is the one who foils this kind of a plot. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, so again, the, the the chapter ends with not only has Esther risen to prominence and to power. Um, but also Mordecai has um, done something heroic and preserved the king's life and has done it in such a way he has told it to Esther and Esther tells the king but also Esther makes sure to give Mordecai credit. So there's an official record that is both positive uh, uh, bonus points for for Esther and for Mordecai setting up to have positive favor uh, as, as the story continues. Maybe also worth noting as one of those foreshadowing, just from a, a sure storytelling standpoint, is that um, these two would-be assassins, when they're found, they're hung on a gallows. So, like, this is the beginning of, like, oh, we're, the, the way we kill people now is, is by gallows. They're not, like, run through with a sword or something, because the gallows are going to be a recurring issue or a recurring image in this, in this story. Um, and maybe, too, we should just say, in the back of our minds, for folks who are um, uh, readers of the, of the Christian and Jewish scriptures that being hung on a gallows or in a tree, whatever, is a particularly shameful thing in Jewish culture and even becomes a law in the the Torah that curses anyone who's hung from a tree and presumably from a gallows as well. And that later on, um, when when the crucifixion becomes a thing, early Christian writers like Paul can see even crucifixion as being just as cursed as being hung on a tree. So this is a particularly shameful thing. And there's this, like, again, almost like a stark contrast against the comedy of this uh, the, the, the long parties and all the, the silliness of the pageantry, and now there's this real sort of sharp, severe, uh, the shadow of a gallows hanging in the story, and that's going to keep coming back because there will be more plotting around the gallows later on in the story. Other things that are worth maybe mentioning in this moment, or are we ready to, to stick a pin in things and, and join next time? Off the next conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> for our next episode. Fair enough. This feels a little bit not just like we're reading the Bible, but also like we're going through one of those old radio serials. Like, join us next time and find out what adventures await. Queen Esther. There's a lot more plotting. Right, right, right. So join us for the plotting <laughs> here as we keep going through the Book of Esther here on Crazy Faith Talk. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.